0: You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Our scripture reading this morning is taken from the Old Testament reading from Genesis 2, the verses 4 to 17. The New Testament reading from Romans 5:12 to 19. We begin then with Genesis chapter 2, the verses 4 to 17. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, and no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not yet sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground. But streams came up from the ground from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. The Lord God formed the man A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds to the entire land of Havilah where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds to the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Ashur. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it you will surely die. Then we turn to Romans chapter 5, verse 12 and following. Romans 5, beginning at verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men, because all sinned. For before the law was given, sin was in the world. But sin is not taken into account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass, for if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Again, the gift of God is not like the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man death reign through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of the one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous." This morning we will continue our series on the teaching, the doctrinal teachings of the Holy Scripture as we find it summarized in the Heidelberg Catechism. This time we turn to Lord's Day 4. You will realize that in Lord's Day 4 we are still in that part of the Catechism, that first part called sin and misery, and we have now come to the last Lord's Day on sin and misery before the Catechism makes its transition to the realm of salvation and deliverance they 4, then, beginning at question and answer 9, But does God, or does not God, do man an injustice by requiring in his law what man cannot do? No, for God so created man that he was able to do it. But man, at the instigation of the devil, in deliberate disobedience, robbed himself and all his descendants of these gifts. Will God allow such disobedience and apostasy to go unpunished? Certainly not. He's terribly displeased with our original as well as our actual sins. Therefore, he will punish them by a just judgment, both now and eternally. As he has declared, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Galatians 3.10 But is God not also merciful? God is indeed merciful, but He is also just. His justice required that sin committed against the most high majesty of God also be punished with the most severe, that is, with everlasting punishment of body and soul. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. As all of you know, I have been doing a bit of globe trotting this past summer. First, it was three and a half weeks of teaching in China, and then it was three weeks of holidays in the Netherlands. And while in those quite different places and countries in different parts of the world, I've been doing a bit of reflecting. What kind of reflecting, you might ask? Well, reflecting on the different spiritual climates. In China, I found a population that generally seemed open to the gospel and wanted to hear about and discuss the gospel. In the Netherlands, I met a population that seemed genuinely disinterested in the gospel. Some might say that the first came across as a pre-Christian society and the second almost as a post-Christian society. And, of course, why is that? What accounts for these differences? Why do the Chinese strike one as open and responsive to the gospel while the Dutch strike one as closed and indifferent? Now, I don't have a complete answer to that, although I suspect that a large part of the answer has to do with materialism and affluence. While in China, the economy is booming and there is construction everywhere, there is a large population that has always struggled and is still struggling to make ends meet. But on the other hand, in the Netherlands, you have a population that is very well to do, that can do almost anything it wants to do and go almost anywhere it wants to go. You see, in China, there is still a sense of need, dependence, and vulnerability. Whereas in the Netherlands, there is a feeling of having arrived, of comfort, and of invincibility. And the result of these different attitudes, while it is that the one country, there is still room for God and a felt need for God, while in the other, There is no longer any such felt need or room. Who needs God when you have everything that your heart desires? And yet, beloved, the differences between these two countries is more than simply a matter of economics. I suspect there is also something else that plays a role, and what is that? Well, it is their view of God. In China, the God of the Bible is just becoming known. In the Netherlands, the God of the Bible is no longer known. At one time, he was known by many. But now most dismiss him or ignore him. Their theology has managed to make him optional, non-essential. Now how is a dumb man? How has their theology brought about this massive paradigm shift? Well, I think for a large part it has been done by failing any longer to take into account the God of Lord's Day 4. For what really does this Lord's Day say to us this morning about our God well, surely, beloved, it has a way of inmo- informing us that our God is more than a God of love, goodness, tolerance, forgiveness, and understanding. It reminds us that he is also a God of justice and judgment, of holiness and of brightness. And in addition, it declares that he is more than simply the God of today. He is also the God of tomorrow. He's the God of all the earth, of all the universe. And he's also the God of hell, the God of life, the God of death, the God of everything. In short, then, Lord's Day, for our beloved, tells us some very frank things about ourselves and about our need for God. And it even tells us some things that we would rather not hear. But, you know, we need to hear them. We need to hear them if we are to live in the way of righteousness, if we are to be saved, if we are to be blessed. So, beloved, let us turn this morning together to Lord's Day 4. And I preached to you on the scene the really bad news that paves the way for the really good news. Or, if you will, the toughest... Lord's Day in the Catechism, and that's not the sacraments, that's here in Lord's Day 4. And in this Lord's Day, we see that history reprimands us in a way, that theology repudiates us in some ways, and that justice reproaches us as well. Well, beloved, you can say that here in Lord's Day 4, the Catechism steps it up a notch. Or perhaps I should say that the rebellious student who seems to have the floor Steps it up a notch. For some time, he has been speaking already. You can hear him on Lord's Day 3. In, in Lord's Day 3, he asked the question whether or not perhaps God is not really to blame for the wickedness of man. And he had asked too about the real origin of man's depraved nature. And finally, he had asked whether or not man's situation was really, truly as bad as God paints it. Is perhaps God not being an alarmist? In short, he's been constantly looking for ways to excuse man, and even directly or indirectly, to blame God. But now, beloved, here in Lord's Day 4, he goes a step further. Some would say that he goes a step too far For what does he do? Well, he accuses God of injustice. Injustice. And in what way does he do that? Well, it's summarized in that statement by requiring in his law what man cannot do. In other words, he is alleging that God's demands or the demands in God's law are way too high, way too unreasonable, way too unrealistic. In some ways, it's like a high school coach demanding that his students jump over a a bar that is two meters high when they haven't even learned to jump over one that's one meter high. How in the world can God expect man to completely love him and to love his neighbor sacrificially when he's not able to do that? So the gist, the thrust of the matter here is that God is unfair. God is insensitive. He's unrealistic. He's even cruel and unjust. Now, of course, such an accusation is nothing new. I think this kind of an accusation probably has been around almost forever. You know, whenever there's sickness, God's often blamed. When there is war, God is accused. When there is suffering or poverty, it too is laid at the door of God. Whether it be Dachau or Darfur or Iraq, modern man has a way of making it all look as if it's God's fault. Why, every time there is a mess in the world, it's said to be of his making. But is that true? Is that what history teaches us? Is that what biblical history teaches us? Is that in keeping with the facts? Not at all. Consider man's original situation. Read the opening chapters of the book of Genesis. Study it in detail. And then I ask you as you read Genesis 1 and as you read Genesis 2, for example, is there anything lacking? Was creation flawed in one way or another? Was man made with defects? Could what subsequently happened have been predicted? And the answer, beloved, is no. It's one loud, clear no. Every day, God creates. And at the end of every day, God steps back and he looks and he evaluates and he says, it's good. And at the end of six days, a whole week of working, God steps back and he looks at everything he has made over those days and he looks finally at man and he says, it's very good. It's exquisite. And no wonder. Because God made. And no wonder because God made man. And when he made man, he made him in his own image. And if you don't get the point, the Bible even adds in his very own likeness. And that's simply a way of saying that God couldn't have made man any better, any wiser, any higher, any finer. He made him a reflection of himself, a mere image He made him a true covenant partner, a real prophet, priest, and king. He made him perfect. And because he did so, God could also give him a most beautiful task. He told him to rule over all that God has made. All of God's marvelous creation is handed to him to care for. He's told to be fruitful and multiply told to enjoy creation's bounty. It's all his to work with, to take care of, to to revel in, to draw inspiration from. And now I ask you, does that sound like a miserly, miserable, short-changing God at work? Does that sound like a God who holds back or who plays nasty games with his creatures? In one of his speeches to Job and his friends, Elijah who says, so listen to me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God to do evil, or the Almighty to do wrong. God cannot be blamed. He is not guilty of injustice. So who then is guilty? Well, you'll notice answer nine, summarizing all the data of the scriptures, points the finger at man himself. Man with a little help from the devil is the real culprit. For look, there was man made in the image and likeness of God. There was man with all the abilities and the qualities and the tools that, that he needed to serve God and to bless himself and to bless creation. He was not defective. He was not lacking. He was not inferior. He was complete and equipped and perfect in every way. But he fell anyway. And why? Why? The bottom line is he decided to take on God, to challenge him, to rebel against him. And you notice the catechism even uses the word deliberate. Some older translations have the word willful. In other words, man's rebellion or fall was no fluke. It wasn't an accident it was intentional, it was premeditated, it was deliberate. Man decided he wasn't content to remain man. He wanted to be elevated to God-like status. And so man is only himself to blame. And as for mankind, it shouldn't accuse God for the mess in this world. He's not the author of the strife in Iraq and Afghanistan or of the poverty and the racial warfare in Darfur or of the persecution and oppression in places like North Korea or of the AIDS epidemic that marches throughout Africa. Well, the fault lies with man. It lies with the first man. That man who robbed himself and all of his descendants of these gifts. So, beloved, what's the first thing that people should do in China, in the Netherlands, as well as in Canada? I think the very first thing is that we should all recognize our guilt and our need. We need to see ourselves in the first place as the fallen children of Adam. And we should realize that wealth and affluence are no remedies for a fallen nature. We should realize that a booming economy is no real fix for our humanity gone astray. But yet there is more. For not only does mankind need to acknowledge its fallen condition, it also needs to recognize that God does not look the other way. That's often what we try to convince ourselves of. And indeed, beloved, so much of modern theology gives us today a God of love, patience, goodness, tolerance, niceness, inoffensiveness, comfortableness, if there is such a word. John 3.16 is the favorite text in all the world. But whoever mentions John 3.17 and 18? A man by the name of Donald McCullough wrote a book a few years ago, And he begins chapter 1 as follows. Visit a church on Sunday morning, almost any church will do, and you will likely find a congregation comfortably relating to a deity who fits nicely within precise doctrinal positions or who lends almighty support to social crusades or who conforms himself to individual spiritual experiences. But you will not likely find much sense of awe or of mystery. The only sweaty palms will be those of the preacher, unsure whether the sermon will go over. And the only shaking knees will be those of the soloist about to sing the offertory. So... That's the way he opens his book, The Trivialization of God. And it has a a subtitle, The Dangerous Illusion of a Manageable Deity. And I think in a way of speaking, that pretty well sums up what's happened to God. He's become managed. It's as if he's hired a whole bunch of PR specialists. And he's been given a new image that caters to human likes and wants and desires. He's been remade so that mankind can live comfortably in a money-hungry, immoral, and self-centered culture. Why have so many people in the West turned their backs on God? It's because we have managed to make him into a powerless, toothless, and spineless deity. But, beloved, that's not the God of the Scriptures. And that's not the God of true theology either. And neither is it the God of Lord's Day Four. Well, look next to question and answer 10, and what do you meet? You meet a God who is not only the mighty creator and the loving father, but also a God who is holy and who is righteous. And yet here you meet God, the judge. Isn't that the thrust? Of this question and answer, first it asks about punishment. Will God allow such disobedience and apostasy to go unpunished? In other words, is the disobedience of Adam and of us, his children, met only with a frown? Does God quickly forget about it and go on to other things? Isn't that how people think today? They've long ago dismissed the idea that God punishes anyone for anything. And if you ask them, they will tell you, of course God's going to let me into his heaven because I'm so good. Maybe I don't pay my taxes. Maybe I don't really work for a living. Maybe I steal and embezzle. Maybe I fool around on my wife. But I'm good. Only nice people inhabit this planet. Didn't you know that? And we're among them. To such a mindset, answer 9 or answer 10 is like a bucket of cold water. Right off the bat, it sets the record straight by saying certainly not or absolutely not. And then the explanation follows. He's terribly displeased with our original as well as with our actual sins. So he's displeased. What does that mean? Just how displeased is God? Is like a grumpy parent who is miserable because his kids didn't come in on time last night or this morning. Or read the scriptures. Displeased enough to kick Adam and Eve out of paradise. Displeased enough to label them as sinners and rebels and to consign them to condemnation and to death. Displeased enough to send the flood to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. To beat Egypt to its knees, to destroy the Amalekites and all those other ites, and to send Israel into exile. Why he's even so displeased about our situation that he sends his son into this world and demands that he become an offering for of sin. Have you ever thought, beloved, if if sin was only a trifle, it was was only a, a minor picadillo, as they say, there wouldn't have been any reason at all for Jesus Christ to come and to take our humanity upon himself and to suffer and to die and to be scourged and crowned with thorns and to be consigned to hell and to be crucified and killed and buried. Who in the world makes his son suffer so much? If it's all about a matter of little or no consequence. But it wasn't that. Isaiah says he took our infirmities. He was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities in what happened to his one and only son, we see just how terribly serious God is about our sin. His displeasure against sin leads to punishment and death and hell. And let's not sugarcoat that all the time either. The ultimate reality of God's displeasure against sin is eternal death. And I know mankind no longer thinks in those terms. When's the last time you heard the word hell? When was the last time that hell was discussed as a fact and as a reality and not as a joke? Or as a swear word? Hell has been banished from the human mind and from modern society. We have sanitized all of these unpleasant things out of our vocabulary and out of our mindset. It's all dismissed, denied, and mocked. Nothing more than really bad science fiction. But sadly, it is so much more than that. Why is it mentioned so often in the Bible, you might ask? You know, why does the Lord Jesus himself speak so often about the reality of hell? Here's the loving Savior, and he is that. But he speaks more often about the most distasteful subject in all the world than than anyone else. And why does he do that? Because it's real. The fact of the matter is, beloved, there are only two roads in this life. There's a road that leads to life. There's a road that leads to death. There's a road that leads to heaven and there is a road that leads to hell. There is a road that leads to everlasting bliss and there is a road that leads to everlasting condemnation. The catechism is dead on when it says, Therefore, he will punish them by a just judgment, both now and eternal. Either your sins are forgiven through faith in Jesus Christ, or your sins remain. And they will condemn you to hell. There's no other way. There's no third way. There is no alternative. There's no other options. Yes, some people need to hear this. As believers, we need to hear it too. The world needs to hear it as well. Maybe there, too, the church has often been lacking. Instead of confronting our materialistic, selfish, indulgent, godless culture with the full message of the gospel, we are inclined to soft-pedal it. The truth of the matter is that we should so often be so much more outspoken and bold and radical How about a message on the sign up front which says repent and believe or go to hell? offensive, right? Of course. True? Yes. Necessary? Of course. So? However, does all of this sound too harsh to your ears? You know, that seems to be the way it came across to our rebellious student here in this Lord's Day. In deep frustration, he shouts, but is God not also merciful? And the answer he gets back seems to satisfy God is indeed merciful. You notice it lasts only for a moment. And then it's back to the old theme again but he is also just and his justice required that sin committed against the most high majesty of God also be punished with the most severe with everlasting punishment of body and soul. Why does the catechism answer in that way? On the one hand, it wants to acknowledge that the light of deliverance is about to dawn. But on the other hand, it is still conscious of the fact that it is in that part called sin and misery. And it doesn't want to let go of that part too soon. It doesn't want to gloss over it too lightly. The catechism is a good student of psychology here, you know, because whenever there's bad news, we try to get rid of it as soon as possible and we try to go out of the good news. But here it insists that we have another look. It insists that as believers, we, we need to understand this. We need to get this. We may love God's mercy, and surely we should, but we also need to be mindful of His justice. You cannot overlook that part of His nature. You can't ignore His high majesty. You can't ignore His right to punish everlasting. He has that right. He's God. But thankfully, he doesn't always exercise that right. Why not? Because if you're in Christ, then someone else has exercised it for you. For all who believe Christ is the great substitute and Savior who has stood in our place, who has taken our sins and trespasses on himself, and he so has met the requirements of God's justice. And that's the message we need to bring to the world. To a world increasingly filled with unbelief and indifference. All of you who do not believe are living in death. You're estranged from God and heading for the great judgment of God. God's justice is real. God's judgment is awful. God's judgment is coming. But there is another way. There is a way out. There's a way to experience the rich and abundant mercy of God, and that is in Christ Jesus. Repent of your sins believe in Him, and you'll have life. You think life is great here with your SUVs and your fancy homes and your holidays and your luxuries and your toys and your leisure activities? You think life is great here? nothing compared to forgiven life, restored life, abundant life, everlasting life. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.